Jill Abramson was a high-profile superstar journalist for many years, for decades, and I just got to know who she was by her famous byline. I think I'd met her just briefly along the way, and then lo and behold, she became the editor of the New York Times. This interview was very interesting because she came out with a new book, and we did an interview with her, and right as we did the interview, there were allegations that she had plagiarized sections of it. And by plagiarizing, let's be clear here, we're not talking about simply cutting and pasting sections from someone else's book. We're talking about attributing ideas um, not in the best way, um, sort of loosely attributing, not fully attributing. And, you know, she took some ownership. Um, some say she should have taken more, that she should have said, yes, I plagiarized. She instead said, I made some mistakes and I'm working hard to correct them. Um, I think it's very unfortunate for the simple reason that I think this book is incredibly worthwhile and important. And I really enjoyed this book among the many books I've read over the past 12 months. This is at the very top of the list. The book is, you know, several snapshots in time, an evolution, if you will, of four news organizations, um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Vice. And they kind of change places in terms of which news organizations are ascendant. And it's fascinating. The personalities are amazing. Um, Marty Baron and uh, Jonah Peretti, et cetera, et cetera. They're all, they're all really interesting people that everyone should know about. So it's just a moment of time. And I think that Joe will be the first to admit in 10 years, this will be extremely historical. But for now, it's incredibly salient. Look at the news business by examining, I guess, four companies, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Vice, and BuzzFeed. And what's interesting to me, besides everything, <laughs> is the fact that the two upstarts, BuzzFeed and Vice, were ascending when you started the book, and the Washington Post and New York Times were sort of on shaky ground. And now um, they seem to have swapped places. Why do you think that is, Joe? What's going on there? There are a number of factors as to why, you know, the new shiny stars who were up and the legacy great newspapers who were still a little wobbly switched hats essentially and one reason is the dominance and hugeness of social media especially Facebook but also Google that Vice and BuzzFeed who are the new players in my story you know really were built on the backs of those companies because Vice's distribution system was YouTube, which was bought by Google, and BuzzFeed would really not have existed at all without social media sharing and especially Facebook. But, you know, now, as anyone in the news media business knows, Facebook and Google are eating up every bit of digital advertising. So the host is kind of starving what were the new, I don't want to call them parasites exactly, but they're starving, they're, they're young. And Jonah Peretti, the head of BuzzFeed, has become you know, quite a critic of Facebook for not paying the people who give them their content enough money. They don't share the wealth. Right, and there's an irony there. And 
to your point, they're so beholden, they became so beholden that that became problematic. Right. The, the other the reason for the switcheroo mm -hmm. is obviously Trump's election. And in some ways, I really do believe that his rants about fake news and enemies of the people, you know, his base loves that. But I think it has encouraged a lot of informed readers to feel with Facebook and fake news and whatnot, that it's best to return to trusted news organizations that have a great record of accuracy and reliability. And so the Washington Post, and especially the Times, have seen their paid subscriptions soar right. since the 2016 election. More ironies. Um, but the business is under assault, Jill, from so many directions, I guess. I mean, you've got you talk about the social media companies, the president, enemies of the people, fake news, real fake news, and real and, and the president accusing news of being fake, um, digital disruption, the business model, uh, how video, video, you know, how, Hulu, right. Netflix. These so, are all now content creators in competition with one another. The Times is about to unveil you know, the weekly, which is going to be, you know, a TV version of the popular podcast, The Daily. So, you know, everyone has become digital first and very multimedia. I mean, is there any way that you can sort of anticipate what things are going to look like five years or 10 years from now? You know, that that is hard. Uh, but I actually think the print newspaper is not not loads of them, but that the big, you know, national and global newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the Times, and I think likely the Washington Post too. I don't know about USA Today, but I think they're going to be around in print. But it's difficult and it's much easier, let's say, to glom all of the Trump stories together one after the other and one of the apps that the Washington Post has called the Post Most even puts the opinion content that's about Trump interspersed. So some days like I can do three scrolls and I'm not beyond Trump in the headline. So uh, there's more news being created now Jill than ever before oh in the history gosh. of the planet and as a consumer you know what what are we to do? I mean, how, how do we find our news? How, when you talk to people, I mean, there's the Facebook news feed. There's, there's Apple News right. now, brand new, that actually uses some human editors and tries to get more of a cross-section ideologically of news providers, which I think is kind of interesting and good. Uh, but people are, you know, on Twitter, they're just buried in news. And, you know, we've, you know, learned to have a Pavlovian response when breaking news from CNN comes on our phone. We're, we're drowning in news, and yet the news itself has never been more important. I agree with that. I, I feel like there's got to be an opportunity for some sort of curated, aggregated model that doesn't exist. I mean, there's a lot of aggregated, yes, and yeah. our own company, Yahoo, does it, but not for around the curve yet, to my mind. 
It's, I think that's true. And, you know, in my book, I talk about, you know, the number of aggregation products that are out there. And I don't know about you, but on a given morning, I can spend like an hour and a half before I've budge to go to work, Uh, reading Axios, you know, reading Politico, which has various morning newsletters, uh, you know, the Times is briefing, the Washington Post, 202, you know, it's, I can just get stuck. It's overwhelming. And I think if it's overwhelming for me, who's spent my life in the news profession, for the average person who just wants quality information, it must be very intimidating and confusing. So if the New York Times, and maybe to a degree the Washington Post, but let's just say the Times, used to be the newspaper of record, I don't think it is anymore. Do you agree with that? And if it isn't, then what is its editorial mission? Right. You know, for Merchants of Truth, I kind of struggled with that question. And where I settled out after doing a lot of comparative reporting is that the Times still serves an important function of setting the agenda for other news organizations. But, you know, because it has such a variety of different kinds of content now and much more lifestyle coverage, much more, you know, in a way, psychology coverage. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the Sunday review section can sometimes feel like psychology today to me. And those stories are perfectly interesting. But there is no newspaper of record anymore. But the Times, more than anyone, is an agenda setter. That's an interesting distinction between agenda setter and paper record. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, What about this notion that news organizations need to have a safe harbor or a sugar daddy um, to survive? Carlos Slim, Jeff Bezos, Mark Benioff, Loreen Powell Jobs, on and on and on. Right, we're watching the LA Times right now. Verizon owns Yahoo. Yeah, sugar sugar daddy. Right, so is that going to be necessary going forward? Well, you know, it definitely, if they are benevolent billionaires, as so far Jeff Bezos has been, you know, he has really fulfilled his promise, which was before he bought it. He promised to provide the runway, not a completely open wallet for them to make a big comeback, and they have. But there just isn't one business model that is going to be right for every news organization. There isn't. I haven't gotten to this point in the book uh, yet, Jill, but my understanding is you talk about being fired. Yeah, I do. Right? Okay. And, and it's sort of a cliche or a trope that, oh, I learned so much from my failure. Um, but maybe it's true. D- did you learn from that episode? You know, I think you learn from, you learn what you're made of with every traumatic experience. I mean, I was run over by a truck just a block from where we're talking. And, you know, I learned things about myself, like in struggling to recover from that. And yeah, I learned things about myself after I was fired. Uh, You know, I talk about some of those things, I think, as candidly as possible, that, you know, I wasn't a perfect manager. You know, I also talk about the fact that I felt in the top job. I've been managing editor, which is the second 
most important editing job at the Times for eight years, and I didn't feel so personally judged in that job. But once I made it clear I wanted to go for the top job and then got it, I felt like I was seen as pushy and too ambitious and, you know, things that are pretty cliche words applied to a woman who gets the top job. And there have been many studies that like your likability goes like this uh, when, when you get that job. But it's the qualities that are seen as pushiness are seen as leadership in men. And that's something I knew nothing about like while I was doing the job and learned about. But I also, for the book, did some reporting on my own tenure as executive editor and some of my failings, you know, I had to come to grips with because I heard them from several sources and, you know, that's in, in the story. You know, I've devoted my life to telling the truth and that has to apply to, you know, what was a very painful episode. Yeah. Jumping around a little bit here, um, I was talking to Peter Thiel not long ago, mm -hmm. and he, maybe somewhat ironically, seems to be the word of the morning, um, said that there's a bull market in news right now, which I think speaks to something you were saying earlier about Donald Trump. What happens to the business after he goes away? You know, that is the $100,000 question. I just don't know. I mean, this is a period where I feel people have gotten much more interested in news. And it is beyond President Trump. But he has been, as you know, ratings gold, especially for the cable networks. And, you know, he has sold lots of papers. And, you know, every time his name is in a headline. I had lunch with a friend of mine from the Times recently, and this person admitted to me that, you know, he writes weekly, that when he doesn't write about Trump, what, you know, his pieces don't get the traffic that they do when it's focused on Trump. So, you know, I'm hoping against hope that the idea that you need to be informed and know facts and what is true will, you know, survive beyond a president who is always telling untruths and challenging facts. You mentioned Facebook. Do you, what do you think? What I do mean, I think? Yeah. I think it, I think it will dissipate. Yeah. I think that I think that it, there'll be a pendulum and we'll have uh, perhaps a color of a colorless or less colorful oh, I president. Agree. Let me ask you about um, your take on how the media is coping and covering Donald Trump? You know, it's hard. Covering the president, covering the White House is the hardest job in journalism by far now. Uh, you have to be an expert in politics and policy, re you know, be responding to, you know, his daily nonsense and his tweets. I wish there was, I say this, in Merchants of Truth. I wish the coverage was less reactive to that. But you also have to be, you know, an expert in criminal law, yeah. you know, to follow, you know, the twists and turns of 
the Mueller probe. So, you know, I'm loath to, you know, judge reporters too harshly. I think, you know, that, you know, Jim Rutenberg wrote a wonderful column in the Times during the 2016 campaign where he said, Trump is challenging all the norms of journalism. Uh, and we partially enabled that by giving him so much free air time, covering those rallies live. But he, he has. And, you know, it's been hard to adjust to that. You know, there's division over whether to call his, you know, I am comfortable calling lies when they are lies, lies. But, you know, there are many editors who don't want to use that word. Yeah. Uh, I found but, it uncomfortable know, I, talking about that on air, like say, saying I'm the President sure. of the United States is lying. It's not an easy thing to say, is no, it? No, and people feel like if you don't know what his intent is in his head, because he picks up so much unreliable right. information and then spouts it, like maybe he didn't intend to lie. Right. But right. there are certain lies that are lies. Right. And it, 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 it is, it's just tough. I think in the past two years, the, the coverage has become more tougher. There's been fabulous investigative reporting done. It, it's just he, very hard right. to cover, you know, such a hostile president who seems to have no respect for the First Amendment or a free press. Uh, I want to go back to um, what you were talking about a little bit earlier, Jill, and that is being a woman in the top job. <laughs> at the paper and um, you also figured out there was a gender pay gap um, at did the a study right and I'm wondering can you talk about that a little bit and have things improved do you think I commissioned when I was executive editor a study of whether we had pay parity or what you know on gender our pay scale looked like and I empowered one of the most senior editors to be in charge of it. And it took, I don't know, six months to complete. And when she was done with it, she marched into my office with a big folder, put on my desk and looked at me and said, you are exhibit A. Wow. Yeah, I'm not blaming her in any way, but she got me like riled up and crazy by what she showed me. And I don't want to go into the number details because, you know, it would be ridiculous for me to argue that the money I was making in the, the scheme of things was that I, that I was lucky indeed to get that job and, you know, be paid far more than most Americans are paid. But there was a, a gap and there was a gap you know, across really editors, you know, were, were where editors throughout the, the organization. And, you know, even before I was fired, we had equalized a lot of those salaries. And I was very proud because in the first year as executive editor, the Times masthead was half female for the first time in its history. And... You know, I, because this editor came in with all kinds of figures that now the Times challenges, I have to, mm -hmm. in fairness, say that. But, you know, when you combine pension plans and other things like that, um, you know, I, I, I was 
you know, badly underpaid. And so I took that up with, you know, Mark Thompson and Arthur Sulzberger Jr. And, you know, I had a, a, a coach at that time who had been a, cor a corporate coach at CBS. And she said to me, you know, you should not be negotiating this yourself. You know, in network news, you get like an agent or something. Right. And she gave me the name of a lawyer who began mm -hmm. like negotiating for me. And I think that seemed very untimesy and happened at about like in the prelude to me being fired. But, you know, in terms of gender, I don't mean to go on too long, but I think it's such an important topic. I mean, one of the things I definitely learned mainly after I was gone is that, you know, women who have the top job, it doesn't happen to you when you're managing editor, you right. know, the number two, but when you go out for the top job and you get it, you know, you are judged and seen as pushy right. and too ambitious and difficult and the B word. Right. And, you know, I certainly encountered that and that Qualities that are seen as very unlikable in women are seen as leaderly in men. So, you know, I studied some of, you know, those reports and definitely that felt familiar. But I also feel being a woman in general has been a plus for my career. You know, I started out in journalism like very closely after all of these gender discrimination discrimination lawsuits were filed against the major news organizations, including the Times, including Newsweek. And so when I was rising up, I felt, you know, the, I was at the Wall Street Journal for eight years and at the Times too. They were looking for women who had management experience to promote. And I think I benefited from that. I want to ask you, I mean, you were instrumental in promoting women in the Times organization. And do you even think that the Me Too stories would have happened had it not been for this whole crop of women reporters? It's hard to say. And I so want to say no. Yeah, right. Because of the magnitude yeah, of the right. story. Yeah. But Jody Cantor, right. who was one of the reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein horrors, yeah. uh, was a great reporter who was actually the editor of Arts and Leisure when I first worked with her at the yeah. Times. I convinced her to join our political team, and she turned out to be a dogged, great political reporter. And when the 2012 campaign was over, I, and she is a great female editor, Rebecca Corbett, we got together and decided Jody should focus on gender mm -hmm. for a year. I think she actually did it a year after I was gone, too. So that sort of set the table. A great editor, a great reporter, eventually joined by Megan. Uh, so, you know, it was women who kind of hatch, let's focus on this. And of course, having written a book about Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, sexual harassment and sexual abuse was gonna be part of that mix. And, you know, I'm proud to have play, played a small part in that. But, you know, I think if anyone had brought, you know, the number of women who ended up talking about Harvey, to Dean Baquet or Matt Purdy, you know, the two, you know, two great news gut 
investigative editors, they, they would have jumped at it. Right. Jill Abrams. And I think the Times has done uh, a very good job. And it, it's incredibly difficult circumstances. You've got, you know, 25 percent or whatever of the population, which is to say the Trump base, that just hates you and screams and loathes you um, and looks for every single error as something that's systematic when it really isn't. Um, so that's hard. And then you have another 25 percent of the population that thinks you can do no wrong. So then the trick is to win over the other 50 percent. Um, and how do you do that, not only by um, trying to appeal to people in a partisan era, but also in a digital era? That's extremely difficult. So Jill has been, Jill has been a lightning rod uh, through her career and now with this book as well. And I think some of it, frankly, has to do with sexism. I mean, to be completely honest, and she talks about that, that she is an aggressive, tough woman. And, you know, a lot of people... Um, criticize her in a way that the same attributes, if they were exhibited by a male, would not be held to the same level or amount of criticism. Full stop. That's a fact. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwork.